Welcome to the table of the Lord, or should I say the table of the Lord this morning. Jesus is present here with us as the host of our communion meal. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 26 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I grew up in a denomination called Churches of Christ. My dad was a minister in Churches of Christ and still is. My grandfather was a minister in Churches of Christ. Um, or and uh, what maybe his, his his father was also a minister and member of Churches of Christ. It's three or four generations deep into Churches of Christ, and Churches of Christ, for the most part, part have a very particular way of practicing communion. It varies a little from church to church, but for the most part, if you go into a Church of Christ building. On any given Sunday morning, you could expect something like this for communion. Someone gets up front, always a male, uh, and offers a communion thought, reads a scripture, talks about the significance of communion, and um, prays. Um, Sometimes there's two prayers, one for the bread, and then they pass it out, one for the cup, and then they pass it out. Sometimes there's one. Most of the time there's two with a pause in between. Um, and, but after the prayer, no matter how, what the exact format is, some ushers come from the front. Sometimes they stand behind a communion table in the front of the auditorium. Uh, sometimes they come from the back. They show up somewhere and they've got these silver or gold trays with cracker, unleavened bread in it. And also the big fancy trays with the communion cups that's got like 50 holes with the little bitty tiny plastic communion cups. And all the ushers, usually all male, they come and they pass out the communion down the rows. And in most churches of Christ, you take the piece of cracker, you take the the cup uh, of juice, usually... You know, Welch's grape juice. And sometimes everybody holds it and waits. Most of the time you just take a little juice, you take the cracker. And here's what happens almost across the board. Complete silence. Total silence. Everybody has this moment of, of personal introspection and reflection. And it, it's taboo in lots of congregations and rude to say anything, for there to be any activity, quiet the children, silence. This is, this is a contemplative space. I remember in high school, I was a part of the Southside Church of Christ. 
The building was a hundred years old. It was this magnificent edifice with huge columns and red carpet and wooden pews and this massive lectern, like enlightenment kind of Christianity. And I remember sitting in the pew during um, communion and you know, my thought pattern was, okay, how have I sinned this week? Um, and it was a time for repentance and confession. Um, thank you, Jesus. You know, I confess that to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood and your body that I receive forgiveness through. And that was kind of the that that was the that was the common pattern, I think, for lots of people. It was a personal time of reflection and confession. Um, very much downplayed a communal aspect to communion. Yeah. Um, it, it downplayed any communal interaction. But here's the thing. Paul, the author of this passage that I read earlier, um, he quotes this communion tradition that we read for the purpose of drawing Christians' attention to their relationships with each other. That's where the four comes from in this passage for I pass on to you the tradition you know that thing I received from the Lord himself the four is to remind the Corinthian church about this communion tradition because they were violating it in their relationships with each other and we'll talk more about this in the message part after the kids disperse but it, it's for this reason this communal nature that Paul Um, lives within, it's for this reason that our practice of communion and storyline is purposefully relational. On most Sundays, as today, the table orients us. Our seating orients and centers around the communion table. Uh, When we share communion, uh, when we've got just chairs in here, we walk together to the table in relationship with each other. Someone else shares the bread and the cup with us to remind us that we're dependent on others for our well-being, both Christ and our fellow disciples in this community. We share thanksgiving with each other, acknowledging both our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. It's the reason that we're sharing brunch around tables this morning as we enter into communion because this is very much a communion with each other. Uh, Paul wants to remind us through this text that we don't just commune with Jesus, we commune with each other too. We don't just remember and honor Jesus uh, and His body, we also remember and honor Jesus' body, the people of Jesus. And when we don't remember and honor Jesus' people, we don't honor Jesus. I'd like for us to share communion this morning with a little bit of a twist. So at your tables, I'd like everyone to take the, uh, the bread and the cup, and I'd like for you to have someone else, everyone share the bread and the cup with someone else. So you're receiving it from someone else in relationship. And when you get it, don't drink it or eat it yet. Hold on to it, and we'll take it together after I pray. Okay? So go get it. Share it with each other and hold on to it. Hey, this is the blood of Jesus shed for us 
and for the healing of the world. This is the body of Jesus shed for us for the healing of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel um, through which you are fixing everything in our world that's been broken by the reign of sin and death. And we know that the way that you do that is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Lord. He's king of the world. We acknowledge him and we acknowledge his presence here with us around the table. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. And everybody takes it together. Another word for communion is Eucharist. And the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. As is our custom, I invite you to turn to your neighbor and share something you're thankful for today, again with a slight twist. Oh, everybody's so intrigued. <laughs> I, want, I want to invite you to share about one person in this community that you're thankful for and why. If you're a guest today, um, you're not obligated to share anything, of course, but if you want to share something, maybe think about someone who is community to you, and that could be someone within or outside of Storyline, and if you want to share why you're thankful for them, and uh, you're welcome to do that. So take some time and share Thanksgiving about someone in particular you're thankful for and why. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, verses 6 through 9. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all the decrees and say, Surely this is a great nation, it is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what also I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The word of the Lord. So, my approach to the message this morning is going to be pretty simple, pretty short. Pretty straightforward, hopefully, because all the bells and whistles came with that brunch we just had this morning. So we wanted to make room for that, because that's a living illustration of what we're about to talk about. We're, I, I figured you'd be okay with that. Yeah? Am I, am I right? Yeah? The bagels and the donuts and the casseroles? Yeah. I think we ought to have discussion once a month. There you go. That's right. Hey. Uh, we're in the midst of a series of conversations called Back to Life. Do we have a Back to Life graphic, John? Is it in, in there? No? Just, just imagine a hand and light, and it says, Back to Life. Um, it's about the Apostle Paul's letter to a church that he started in Corinth, Greece, which we call 1 Corinthians in the Bible. Uh, the church there is made up of a lot of new Christians, and they're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be Christians and to live out the resurrection life of Jesus as a community. And that's exactly what we're trying to figure out, too. What does that mean for us as a community of faith? And I want to prime the pump a little bit. If, you, if you've visited or never visited before, we have conversation, actual conversation in the midst of our, our message. Uh, I know, right? Like people talk. It's amazing. So in a little while, I'm going to ask a question that has something to do with uh, applying this story to us. So I'd like to prime the pump and have you listen as I'm describing what's happening in this text, in this story, to be thinking about what meaning does this have? What import does it have for our relationships within storyline? How does it affirm us? But more importantly, how does it challenge us as a community to live this out? So be thinking about that as we dig into this text. 
This text is the longest treatment in the Bible about what we call communion, what others call the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. And as you probably noticed, it's not a piece of systematic theology. It is a very contextual response to the Corinthian church and to their practice of communion. And for that reason, it's very important uh, for us to pay attention to it. So, I'm going to kind of run through this text and talk, because uh, there's lots of different readings of this text, and of course, I know the exact right one. So, I'm, I'm going to share that with you, right? I, I humbly submit this to you for your discernment. That's what I was supposed to say. So Paul observes, out of the box, verse 17, their meetings do more harm than good. There are divisions among you when you come together as a church. And then something about how folks were eating without others and getting drunk and those who had nothing were being humiliated. What's going on here? What's going on in this story? Keep in mind that most of the churches that Paul started met in people's homes. Probably in wealthy people's homes, Uh, who had come to Christ, most homes like this had large banquet rooms that could host 40 to 60 people. And that's really how the church spread in the Greco-Roman Empire was through these kinds of homes. That's, That's probably why, as much as anything, they had house churches. It's because it was practical to have a group of 40 or 60 people come over to a more affluent member's house and to be all together. And as a part of this gathering they would have a meal. So this may be a stunning cultural revelation, but Greco-Roman folks like to eat. (laughs) And they had all kinds of cultural practice wrapped up around their dinner times. The regular evening meal was called the Deknon. It consisted of two elements. First was supper, which was often a potluck like we practiced this morning where everybody brings something and contributes to the meal. The second element they called the symposium, which was a fancy way of saying drinking party. Uh, it was where they brought out the drinks, the wines, you know, the equivalent of going to the library for the cigar or something like that. A cigar and a whiskey or something that have a drinking party after the food. There were common problems with Greco-Roman meals. One problem is that they were often hierarchical. They were socially stratified. The best seats, the best food, the best wine, the best company, the best entertainment, all of that in Greco-Roman meals was reserved for the the most wealthy, for those of noble birth, for free people rather than slaves, and for anyone with some prestige associated with themselves. So these meals, culturally, would divide the rich from the poor, the slave from the free, just in terms of seating arrangements and amenities that you could experience even within this public banquet hall that would have 50 or 60 people in it. Another problem was that Greco-Roman meals were often filled with disruptive speech and argumentative cliques. You've got lots of philosophers who are challenging folks practice of the meals because they just get in these big fights. And you can imagine that they get all the more disruptive after the wine starts flowing and people start dividing into their factions of Democrats and Republicans or whatever kind of factions they had in the day. 
The final problem was drunkenness, which for obvious reasons would uh, cause some more chaos and trouble. There was so much attention to the quality of the drinks that it wasn't uncommon at a dinner party to have a dedicated bartender or sommelier, you know, our, our equivalent, who would tend to the alcohol, make sure it rolled out, finer wines coming later, well into the evening, everyone sitting around and having a good time. This is the cultural backdrop to this story. And it helps to kind of clarify what's happening in the Corinthian church. In short, they were just being their Greco-Roman selves and enjoying their evening meal the way they always would, right? Um, With all of its shortcomings. The rich were divided from the poor. They started eating and drinking before the poor could get off work and join in the gathering. Folks who wouldn't have much to bring anyway, why wait for them? It's not like they're going to bring some good bagels. I mean, let's go ahead with this thing. I'm, I want to get the drinking on. This will be a good time. Who needs to wait? I mean, they, they wouldn't even be sitting next to me anyway. Paul says, you're not sharing the Lord's Supper. You're sharing in your Greco-Roman Supper. Your culture of supper practice is violating the values of the gospel of Christ. The gospel that transcends cultural distinction. The gospel that includes rich and poor, slave and free, together on equal footing. The gospel should, should shape the supper and not Greco-Roman values. The gospel breaks down all barriers. It breaks down fallen structures. It doesn't perpetuate them. But that's exactly what was happening in their supper. What is the gospel for Paul? For Paul, the gospel is the good news that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God is fixing everything that's been broken by the reign of sin and death. He's fixing our relationships with God. He's fixing our relationships with each other. He's fixing fixing our relationships with ourselves. He's fixing our relationship with the earth, with the created order. For for Paul, the gospel is very big. This is very much a gospel text. Because he's talking about their relationships. He wants to see the gospel embodied, the good news of reconciliation embodied within their practice of the supper. Supper, not not continued division and disunity. Here's what it means to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The language he uses in verse 26. It doesn't mean that we simply say out loud, the gospel or the Lord's death. Or, or saying something just for verbal proclamation as we take communion together. It doesn't mean just having a little talk before we take the bread and the cup. We proclaim the Lord's death as we embody the values of the gospel and the cross in our community by showing consideration for each other and by refusing to perpetuate the divisions that are present. In our broader culture. This meal context also makes clear what Paul means when he mentions taking the bread or the cup in an unworthy manner and discerning the body of Christ in verses 27 through 29. This isn't about individual piety and being worthy in myself and and thinking the right thoughts or having the right confession time or posture or attitude. This is about public Action. Discerning the body is not, I've got to make sure that I think about 
the actual physical body of Jesus in communion, or we'll get in trouble, we'll come under judgment. No! The body of Christ that Paul is referring to is the people of God. The the same body he talks about in the next chapter when he describes it in this beautiful metaphor as the body of Christ. Discerning the body means we pay attention to what's happening in the church. The body of Christ here is a reference to the church. It's to make sure that that what's happening in our community aligns with the gospel that we proclaim in the supper. To eat and drink unworthily is to make the table an opportunity for injustice, for division, rather than justice and unity in Christ. We don't know the whole story, but apparently some people were even getting sick. They were growing weak. Some were even dying, verses 30 through 32. And Paul thinks this is an expression of the judgment of God, to discipline them, to get their attention, because they are rejecting the gospel by the way they're practicing the Lord's Supper together. And Paul's solution is very simple. In verses 33 and 34, everybody eat together. What what do you know? Novel thought. Just wait for each other. But Paul, I get really hungry. And and I'm I'm really looking forward to that drink because Sundays in Greco-Roman culture, that's a working day. There's not a it's not a special day in American Christian culture where Chick-fil-A is off for the day, you know, and everybody doesn't work for the most part. Greco-Roman culture, people are coming home from their jobs and they're hungry. They're ready for a drink to kick back, to be with their folks. Oh, Pa, I mean, I'm so hungry when I get there. I have an idea. Why don't, if you're hungry, why don't you just get a little snack at home? And then you can come and wait and eat the meal with everybody else. So you'll do it without being divided. You'll be able to have this common union together that reflects the common union you have in Christ when you share communion together. So let's discern together. What does this story mean for us in storyline? How do we apply the message of this text in our life together? Yes, ma'am. Everybody discern the body together. Yes. And like you're coming at it from, we're all sitting in rows. We're all sitting in rows, and we're reading this text, and we're like, calm it down. And we're like, well, we're sitting in rows, and we're really quiet. Like, how much more tone down can we get? And really, the context is they were having a giant party, and he's telling them to tone it down a little. And it's like, okay, well, maybe we should ring it up here, and like, you know, really get in this party. Yet. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. So wrap it up so we can tone it down. <laughs> yeah. No, but just like maybe like we don't have to tone it. Maybe we don't have to be thinking. Keep it toned down in our context. Sure. Maybe we should be thinking more about the like what you said, the community aspect of it, and less about like toning it down. Right. Yes. This this text has long been used for to tone it down. 
because of a particular way of reading, not taking the supper in an unworthy manner and discerning the body as like we need to prayerfully and contemplatively and reflectively think about Jesus during this time. That is that's not the context of the the meal shared by the early church. Uh, when G, when Paul says discern the body, he's he's basically saying be considerate, include each other, make sure everybody feels welcome around the table. Um, and when we get at that, it's not we can we can we. He wasn't saying don't eat a meal. He was saying if you're going to eat a meal, you need to do it together. Don't it's not don't have a party. Have a party and, and honor Jesus with your party by including everybody. Yeah. So yeah, we can have a party. And Jesus is risen, and He's alive, and He's present with us. I mean, why why wouldn't we kind of have a party, right? Yeah. Other thoughts. Yeah. What are any you folks for? Right. Right. It's an internal contradiction. Well, and maybe in lower church traditions, we don't have the priest figure who administers and turns the elements, you know, into the body and blood of Jesus. And so, especially in lower church traditions, if it's all individualism. Like, why are we even doing this? Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. But I think the word that really, when I look at that, the word we have, uh-huh. I think the word that really comes, makes us more grasp, that makes me able to grasp it better, is to get rid of the word unworthy and say appropriate. The appropriate way. That let's take this in an appropriate way. Yeah. And what's an appropriate way for a group of people to come together and remember that we are a body? Do I, do I shame the poor who can't bring enough food and go ahead and eat without them and so they're hungry? Yeah. They're not, they're not included? Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what's all that work like? I remember at the Passover meals that we did, which is based on the Passover meal, I remember doing one for a class uh, and we were all just having a class, you know. We're sitting around and, and laughing and cutting up as we're eating this meal. And this deacon is with me. He says, should we tell everybody to kind of throw it down? I mean, they're getting kind of raucous here. I'm going, dude, what are you doing when you get a meal? It's a meal. It's not a good time. This is, this is not feeling reverent to me right now. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's what, what do we determine? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Word. And, and really, isn't that the common theme in Paul's letter in, in so many different scenarios? Like, would you guys love each other? Would you be considerate of each other? Would you, would you uh, think of others uh, ahead of yourself? Would you consider um, how you might pour yourself out for each other? Um, just be considerate. Love each other. Uh, that's a resounding theme. Yeah. Anybody else? I'm sorry, I just want to throw out one other powerful thing about this book when you hear yeah. these children are allowed to participate. Yeah. And you should. Yeah. 
And it is. It's the reason, I don't know if I said it this morning, but it's the reason that as a part of our liturgy, we say all are welcome. While none are required, all are welcome. And that's kids. That is, that's even folks that aren't religious or a part of this church. Because if, if this is the table of Jesus, uh, who wasn't welcome at Jesus' table? Like, everybody was welcome. So a way that we practice the table is that same spirit. That's not to say there's not richness or legitimacy to more closed communion traditions, but that's the rationale for our open and inclusive communion is, like, who wouldn't Jesus let come have dinner with him? Uh, he would go to folks' house that, and get a hard time because they were, they were risque or whatever. You know, everybody was welcome at Jesus' table. You're pointing. Somebody has something to say over here? Well, this is a time for you to comment, I think, to be coming from the picture, why you chose that and the story behind it. That, that's what's next in my notes, John. Well, hallelujah. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, question. Um, in the Bible, when they talk about the body of Christ, are they always talking like, oh, you're a local body of Christ? Like, the church in court? Yeah, I think sometimes it's a universal thing. His use of body here is the group of people that's in that living room. And that is the, that's the most immediate context and application of that text. There are, there are, and then you know, the next text is he's talking about how the church is the body of Christ. Um, he's thinking of the house churches in Corinth, but he's probably also, it's not something that he wouldn't tell to the church in Ephesus or the church in Pergamum or Thessaloniki. So um, while there are yeah, universal claims, most of the New Testament, especially these letters, it starts in the weeds. It starts in the ground level of local community. And so in a very real sense, I would say it's a both and and, and not an either or. Like the, the local community is the body of Christ. Well, at the same time, part of the larger universal body of Christ. And Paul speaks on both of those levels. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll get real and think about a couple of possible applications. And there are ones that I'll, I'll talk about more this fall. But uh, I'll prime the pump a little bit also because it's getting light. Uh, one, I think, is... Um, we are, Storyline is a mostly white, mostly middle class community. And what does it mean as part of our commitment to the table to be and to, per, to go out of our way to embrace into our fellowship folks that aren't part of those categories? To be an inclusive community racially, um, to be an inclusive community um, um, socioeconomically and otherwise. I think part of what that means is the table has to, for, for people to come around the table here in the way that we're structured and storyline means that we're present with those kinds of folks around our tables in our neighborhoods, around our tables at the bars, around our tables in our workplaces, that we are purposeful about being present with people uh, who, who aren't like us because all are welcome at the table. I think that's one application that challenges us. I think another application that would challenge us is uh, we live culturally 
in this very polarized situation. Um, politically, socially. Have y'all picked up on that? You know, just a little bit. You don't have to look further than than John McCain's funeral and the eulogies that have happened most recently. And the way you can hear um, how McCain is remarkable on some level because he's bipartisan and he reaches across the aisle. And also the, the little arrows that shoot out of the eulogies um, toward division and like, you know, we want to zing somebody through this or that. We live in that context. And it's easy to get absorbed up into those ideologies. Those ideologies revolve around and are built upon antagonism at their core. They're built upon, they, the energy within those ideologies feeds off of conflict. It's really easy to get absorbed into those, and even in subtle ways. You know, we're Southern, so we're polite, we're not direct. Um, but in our heads, and I, this is as much a confession as it is a challenge um, for the rest of you, in our heads, we're like, that is a dumb perspective. You know, that is not my opinion. That is wrong, you know, even within our community, right? In our community, we have a diversity of perspectives. And I think this text challenges us to bring those around the table of Christ and to let the table of Christ diffuse the antagonisms that are present in the ideologies that we can get absorbed in so that we can operate in this space where Christ is Lord and where the Spirit of God is leading us forward in discernment, which means I've got a heart check when I'm feeling some smugness towards somebody else who I don't think gets it. Yeah? I think the table challenges us in that way. To be humble and to hold each other close and with love because we share a common union in Christ and in communion around this table. Let me direct your attention to the banners here. This is the first time we've talked publicly about these. And this is a perfect timing. Uh, This is one of my favorite paintings, not because of its phenomenal artistic technique or its expression, as much as the message that it communicates when you get up close and the story behind it. Uh, It's called The Feast in the House of Levi. And it was painted in 1573 by a guy named Paolo Veronese. He paints this. Um, He's Italian. You couldn't tell by my amazing Italian accent. Uh, It's one of the largest canvases of the 16th century. The original in Venice, 18 feet high, 42 feet wide. It is huge. So these folks, uh, they're life-size if you're up next to that thing. Have you seen this in person, Paul? I don't know. Uh, Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Yeah. Paul goes way back with uh, all things Italian, so you'll have, to, you'll have to ask him about that. So this painting caused no small amount of controversy because it, originally paint, it was originally painted as a Last Supper of the Christ. Um, you know, like Da Vinci's famous Last Supper with a long table and Jesus is in the middle and the disciples, you know, on either side. So Veronese was called before the Roman Catholic Inquisition. Because this Last Supper painting was deemed, in their words, irreverent and even heretical. 
particularly because the painting depicts Christ in the same space, their language, same space as buffoons, drunken Germans, dwarfs, and other such scurrilities. The council demanded that Veronese change his painting or else. And you know when you go to the Inquisition what the or else is, right? And so in a very crafty move, Veronese simply changed the title of the painting. And all of their concerns magically went away. He said, no, this is the feast in the house of Levi, like the story in the Bible, where Jesus goes out and meets this tax collector, Levi, also known as Matthew, one of the authors of one of the Gospels, the stories about Jesus. He goes out to Levi's tax collecting booth. Tax collectors, not popular people in Greco-Roman or Jewish culture. Um, and Levi invites Jesus to go to his party at his house with all the other scoundrel and sinner friends that he's in cahoots with. And Jesus goes! Jesus goes and shares a table and defiles himself around all of these sinners and tax collectors. And the religious people criticize him for it. And he says, you know, it's not people who think they're healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. And that's why I'm here. So that's why I'm here among these folks. That's who I'm called to share a table with. That's why this painting hangs on the wall above our hospitality table over there and in our gathering. Because that's the kind of table we gather around. One that breaks down divisions. One that welcomes everyone, not on the basis of their political affiliations. Not on the basis of social status or sexual orientation or gender. But on the basis of our shared humanity. In the image of God that is stamped upon all of us. Because that's who Jesus is. And he is present as the host of our table. He is the Lord of this community and this room. May the table of the Lord extend from this table into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into the bars and restaurants that we frequent. And everybody says, Amen.